This week on FX Guide TV. Canada's image engine talk about their VFX work on The Thing. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Codex Digital. Codex Workflow is an end-to-end camera-to-post system that makes production easier and more efficient than ever before. Find out more at codexdigital.com. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to FX Guide TV. Now recently we visited Image Engine who have just finished work on The Thing, which is not a remake but a very clever prequel. Let me show you why you flew 10,000 miles. It really was going, you know, taking what we've done on District 9 and pushing it beyond that. So. Although we, you know, District 9 was very much the one creature, but multiples of that creature. There's some hard stuff, hard surface stuff as well, but this was multiple creatures, all very different, uh, transforming, uh, quite a lot of effects work, and also a lot of environment work. Let's discuss about what you had on set, because the actors had to obviously be terrified. I mean, audience is terrified, but the actors had to be terrified of what was happening, you know, to them. So you actually had a few things happening on set to give them more than just eyeline. Yeah, I, I mean, and also for us very much to, to get as, as good of a plate as possible. So um, there was quite a few uh, practical puppets that were used and that, that were built, which of course gives us a perfect reference for light and also for the framing more than anything. Um, we built all sorts of rigs which we were coming up with as we were shooting. So we were testing with special effects and stunts how we could kind of solve this and get as basically as a good plate as we possibly can and best interaction that we could kind of get. So there were animatronics and uh, uh, puppets. Some of the puppets are still in the movie. Um, uh, we always set out to augment quite a few of them and we kind of ended up augmenting a bit more. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we, any, anything we could think of. You know, a lot of the times also we, we made sure that we covered it with witness cameras so that we have you know, good reference for tracking things. And yeah, there's, uh, there was quite a lot going on really. One of the really uh, key aspects of the visual effects work in terms of the creature work is this need to extend out from the actor because as the creature evolves, in different shots, you've either got some or part of a real actor as part of that, which meant it seems to me that you had to get your shaders down because there, there was a need to them to sort of really, really match what you got on set. Can you tell me how you achieved that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's again, we were, we were using um, we, our starting point was what we did on District 9, and we basically uh, that basically evolved. Um, throughout this show, so we have uh, a very good skin shader with uh, some custom subsurface scattering and um, 
you know, response to light, specu specular response and reflections. So um, it, it got evolved, like it usually does through the LookDev um, process. But we also, you know, you have something on film that's there, something to match to. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's good for that reason as well. And then it does give us uh, an opportunity to even use some of what's in the film plate. So for example, we have some faces that were still from the plate whilst we replaced everything else. And then it kind of, when it has to behave differently, it's, uh, it's over to, to the CG version. So you mentioned some custom stuff there, but what were the sort of tools that you're using? I mean, for example, what was it rendered in? Uh, we're using 3D Light for this one, uh, but with our own kind of shaders, of course, a lot of development going into that. So we discussed the creature and, and, and obviously the hard surfaces, but there's, by definition, the way to kill the darn thing is with the flamethrower. Were there practical flames? I mean, what was on set being fired by the actors? Because it's a bit dangerous having actors walking around with flamethrowers. Uh, it is, but we set up very early on. Uh, we, we basically decided that, you know, CG fire, it's, it's, that's a little bit too much for us to, uh, to take on. It's not, you know, I, I, having, having worked at a, uh, on very heavy effects movies before, that kind of uh, effects, it's, it, it's, it takes a lot of work. And this is primarily a creature show, so that's where the effort kind of went into. For me, it was also a decision, uh, together with Matthias, that even if you, if you do um, CG flames, it's very hard to light the set to make it look like both of them are in, living in the same world. Uh, that takes a lot of effort and obviously time on set, and it's, I, it's very hard to get it right. If so, we basically um, we shot our plates with puppets on fire, stuntmen's in suits on fire, uh, flamethrowers, you know, the real thing there to, to basically have the correct, you know, just flames lighting up the set in the right way. Of course, when we get to, uh, to, to, to our animation, the performance will be different because uh, uh, we're not animating a guy in a suit. It's a creature that's filling up sim the similar space. Um, so we, ha you know, we uh, put a lot of flame elements on there, some CG fire mixed in, uh, but at least it's kind of, it sits in with, what's, with what the lighting, lighting is doing on, on the rest of the set. But, you know, we, we, there was a lot of cleanup, of course, um, 2D cleanup, so we, have, we need good, good camera tracks to, to but, be able but, to... But in terms of this idea of getting stuff on set, and I, I know that you didn't do an image engine, but didn't you also get some poor extra to get locked up in, a, um, in an ice room for like six hours? Absolutely, yeah. That was uh, that poor guy. I don't think that's... For what he... reason? <laughs> um, basically, we created a very big library of, of breath. Uh, this was something that we ended up doing quite late in the show, actually getting the thumbs up to go ahead with that. Uh, it didn't seem like a priority, but we, we pushed pretty hard to at least have, have those elements shot. Uh, and to me, again, it was, if, if, we can, if we can get the opportunity to do that, it's, it's, I think it's a very good kind of approach. You've got some, some good breath, all different angles. Shouting. So shot against black or something? Yeah, shot it against black, backlit, so that it shows up well. Um, uh, a guy in a black hood doing talking, shouting, uh, normal breathing, heavy breathing. And I'm not making up, it was like six hours in a it freezing... Was, it was six hours in a freezing, yeah, for... Yeah, I, I left that with a very good friend, one of the leads here, Bernard. He, he looked after that for me. 
Did you do lots of uh, scanning of the actors, or how did you actually come about? Because obviously one way to go would be to get a really detailed 3D scan of an actor and then just make a fully CG, or were you using actual live face footage? Um, we did actually have, we, we got um, uh, a scanner out on set, and uh, over one day, we, we basically had a, inside the studio, we set up a, a big black box, um, where we took texture photographs of those actors, then just got them to walk straight into the scanner, and we scanned, you know, different positions and um, kind of arms out and all this kind of thing. Uh, just basically trying to cover as much as we can because we knew we we're going to need, um, you know, to go from the human in transforming into monsters. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we needed something to base uh, the models on. So we did a lot of scanning, actually. We did a lot of body scans and uh, very extensive texture shoots um, uh, for the actors themselves. And then once, uh, once we were back here, we did some very, very detailed skin texture shoots with uh, a polarizer so that we can uh, just keep twisting that, trying to keep as still as possible and get rid of highlights to get some very good source material for, for the texture painting. Because uh, even though the specular highlights tends to screw up, obviously, a, a flat, uh, diffuse reference. Mm -hmm. You can also get really good detail from a specular highlight because it's so surface-driven as opposed to the diffuse, which is, of course is fundamentally coming from a subsurface. Mm -hmm. Did you do anything to try and get that skin surface quality in terms of uh, exact texture? Yeah, we did. It became it's quite hard because you have to be very, very still, but with the polarizer doing, um, just twisting the polarizer, you can subtract one image or diff an image from the other and get uh, basically the what, just the specular back out. And that is, that's something that we built into to some of the bump maps and, and so on, because you get, the, you get just the specular with a very, very fine detail. Either someone miraculously healed themselves someone is not who they say they are. So what was your final shot count on the film? Uh, we ended up in just under 520 shots. Can but, I ask um, how many you thought your shot count was going to be when you were bidding it? Originally we were down to do about 350. But it's quite common for a project to increase. Yeah, very much so. And in um, fact, it can actually be a bit of a studio um, confidence with the film that, that they feel like it's worth spending more Absolutely. on. Absolutely. No, very much so. And um, I mean, and the thing was an interesting one in that um, our original deadline was, um, the original release date was April of this year. Um, and then what they did is they swapped out um, Fast and the Furious. And they put that into our, this date and moved us to the October date, which, you know, for a film like The Thing, I personally makes a lot of sense. Did that give you a lot more time on the visual effects? Uh, it didn't, it didn't. Um, because basically once, um, our original end date was, um, as we said, like February. Um, we ended up going until um, like early June. Um, so, but then the shot count expanded. And also um, we had reshoots. Obviously in the reshoots there was um, a new alien. And, and they made much more of him. Um, so we had to be quite careful because a three month window to do, you know, we want that to be as good as everything else that had eight months spent on it. And in fact, you had quite a lot of variation in the sort of shots that you were delivering, weren't you, from like... Yeah, no, I mean, in terms of the spectrum of work, it was actually a really good um, project for Image Engine in terms of, um, we'd done environment work before, we've done character work before, but we've never really done it all together. 
Um, so, and, and I mean, the way, way I broke my teams down, um, I broke them into two creature teams and an environment team. Um, and, and you know, you build your teams on the strength of the individuals that lead those units. Image Engine is big enough to be handling more than one project at a time and certainly dovetailing other things in and around. Mm -hmm. Do you try and keep everyone just dedicated on the one project or are you literally just swapping based on skill base? No, no. I mean, we try and, we try and have crew-based um, units. So you'll you're build your team for your project. Um, I mean, obviously, sometimes there is some overlap. Um, um, for example, I had two creature teams, so um, the Juliet team and um, what we called the Me Edward team. Um, but of course, you know, the skills that they need are the same. But, um, you know, sometimes I kind of like having that dual approach as well. It's more efficient, actually, to have somebody that's already solved that type of shot to solve the next one and the next yeah. one after that. It's actually kind of the worst world when you have to keep on swapping in new artists to absolutely. solve the same yeah, problems. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, the only reason we were able to turn around the Sanders material after the reshoot was because we'd had a good run-up um, in getting, so the Edward team took on that project. Um, now, this is shot anamorphic film for, mm -hmm. for great reason and yeah, yeah. fits in well with, but I'm wondering how much are you bidding sort of anamorphic films these days? Because that's... Um, anamorphic, it's the same problem that it always used to be. It's the tracking. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, just because you have a barreled lens, you know, you're going to have tracking issues. Um, but, but are people shooting that much anamorphic film? Uh, no, no. I mean, you know, Super 35 very much took over from anamorphic in that the problem you have with anamorphic they is even for DVD. Film. Well, you know, that's, that's it, not very often. You know, um, I think a film is, uh, ironically for me, I think film's going to end up the ultimate archive material. You're going to end up archiving your, your final finished film on negative. That or what film will end up being, because it lasts 200 years. You know, if you back it up onto data, you know those drives. You know, when I first started at CineSight 15 years ago, we used DSTs. If you had stuff on DST now, you couldn't yeah. get it back. What when you're bidding a, sh a show? What sort of is the biggest uh, thing that's going to affect, other than the script, of course? The biggest thing that's going to affect your duration and hence, obviously, your budget. Is it like the camera tech, like what it's shot on? Is it? Uh, no, I, I think in terms or does of that sort of not matter anymore. No, I, I, not as much. Um, I think you know the anamorphic thing. I think you know you need to be aware of. So you know you need maybe put a little bit more in terms of time and man days for tracking. Um, but apart from that, I think um, you know I think the biggest thing is obviously stereo. You know that obviously does add work. Which you didn't uh, have to worry about on this. We one. We didn't have to worry about, and I think they were very from the very beginning. They were no, no, we're not going to do this stereo. This is very much a. We want it, uh, you know, in many ways it is tied into the 80s film from John Carpenter, so they wanted to pay homage to that as well. But I interrupted you, you said stereo, what else? Um, I would say there's stereo and, and 4K, you know, if you're doing something at greater than 2K, it just slows everything down, just in terms of pure rendering and, um, I mean, you know, a couple of the guys um, have gone, gone back to Weta and, uh, you know, they're saying they're going to be working on The Hobbit, which is you know, different frame rate, 4K and stereo. So yeah, they're kind of clobbering on every score there. In terms of your render farm and your capabilities here, this was a very animation intensive project mm. in respects. Probably not so, it wasn't so bad on rendering, is that right? Um, I mean, we've been very lucky in that, um, uh, in terms of the original pipeline that the facility was built on, it was built on a character pipeline. Um, so it's been very refined and the R&D team here are excellent at working on the shaders, working 
to minimise those render times. Um, we try to keep everything down to under an hour of frame. Um, I mean, obviously, as you add complexity, add muscle simulations, add um, hair, add all of that stuff, it does bump up. But Touchwood, in general, you know, it, it, the project went, you know, we would submit renders at the end of day and we'd have them for the morning. You were the lead facility on this project. Um, how did you go working with the other, both vendors and also just the director and the VFX advisor? Was it I mean, we were, local? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, the way the project was set up, um, they wanted to try and do it in Canada. Because um, obviously that uh, makes sense for the tax breaks, makes sense for you know, for, you know, post was based in Los Angeles. Um, um, the other main vendor was Mr X. They did uh, an opening sequence um, of about 60, 70 shots. Um, they are obviously based in Toronto. Um, so obviously um, Dennis, who's their visual effects supervisor, he was out there for the shoot um, for their sequence, and we had meetings with them. Um, I mean, Jesper, who is our visual effects supervisor, was the supervisor of the whole film as well. Um, and then basically towards the end of the production, they brought um, Petra, who was the studio's visual effects producer, brought in um, a smaller studio called With a Twist, and they did um, some of the breath additions. And just in finishing up, let's talk about talent for a second, because obviously there's been a big growth in Canada for mm -hmm. the um, community. Uh, is that growth being serviced by local talent in terms of the artists, or is it that are bringing in no, people like I, yourself from England? Yeah, no, there there is there is lots of local talent. Um, I think it, it reminds me a lot of London when you know when I first started in the industry. Um, so there was a small select band of people, but you do have to get people in just to bump it up, and then levels of experience as well. Um, I mean, especially Vancouver. Vancouver has been a very strong TV market. But film hasn't really been a major player here for, you know, it's only in the last few years that that's right. happened. Um, so I think, you know, that balance of getting people in and training people up at the same time it is something, and, and I mean, I mean, you know, my last company, Double Negative, we had I don't know, people from all over the world. Um, and I think that's a really good balance. I like that. It's also the same as that image engine itself is building up its kind of um, tech pools of expertise or mm. rather tech competencies because you know even though of course you can buy a lot of stuff uh, there is still a, yeah, an absolutely. R&D requirement. No absolutely and one other thing that I give big credit to Sean and Pete who kind of set up the, the film department was that they, they insisted on a strong R&D team um, so John Haddon who is the R&D lead here is you know for all he won't admit it but he is a genius and you know you've got a core crew of you know, seven or eight people there that can, you know, and, and it is, it's, it's um, you know, taking what we learned from District 9, what worked really well, you know, the skin shader, that worked really well. So let's, let's build upon that, let's move on and... Well, we heard about that earlier, but in fact you also picked up from some other films in terms of hair. Perhaps yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What was that from? So, um, so in terms of, um, you know, we, the hair system is based on fur, and obviously that was developed for the Twilight movies. So the wolves is, you know, the wolves fur becomes hair. So, you know, and again, it's, it, it's, it's all those stages of slowly building up um, all the technologies to kind of keep you going. Um, and hopefully uh, our next projects will be able to push it even further. And I would recommend getting John Carpenter's original The Thing and watching it right before or perhaps right after the new one. Now, I'm sure you've heard me say it before, but we love hearing from you. Yes, we do. So email us at tv at fxguide.com. Well, that's all we've got time for, so thank you for watching. See ya.
For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.